Hello, and welcome to the Kidney Cast. I'm Laura Morris. And I'm Ari Deckard. This is our podcast where I interview Ari about his experiences with Alport syndrome and his three kidney transplants and all the other related medical things that have happened to him in his life. Last episode, we took a little bit of a break from our chronological format to talk <laughs> about the Alport Syndrome Foundation family meeting that we went to. Mm -hmm. The episode before that, to get back to <laughs> our story, was about the loss of your second transplant, yeah. among other things, and your decision to move in with me to Seattle, or our decision. Yes. So to pick back up on that thread and kind of catch up to where we were again. Sure. Two episodes ago, you were talking about how because of all the things that were happening to your memory at the time, you had this kind of six-month weird gap where you don't have a firm grasp on everything that happened or specific memories of things you know happened. Right. And I ended up talking a lot about the events <laughs> that happened and filling in gaps, but as much as possible, because I was talking about your experiences, your reactions to losing your transplant, your decision with me to go move to Seattle. Yeah. So I wanted maybe you to talk about as much as you remember about those decisions or those things. First, how you felt about that transplant loss, and then second, about the move. Wow. Um, okay. I think my first solid memory, sort of at the end of those six months, is the day we moved. So I think I have, like, general impressions about the conversations that we had before that about moving, about talking to my parents about it, about all of those things. When it comes to losing my transplant, you laid out really well what I was feeling when you talked about talking to me about it. It was, it was one of the most, gosh, disappointing doesn't even begin to describe it, but it was one of the most disappointing moments and times of my life. It was crushing. Um, I, I, I think alluded to this throughout the, the, uh, the narrative that even though Alpert syndrome is not my fault <laughs> and, um, there are things I have done and things that I haven't done that I had more or less agency in for a very, very long time. And this was definitely during that time period. I took far more ownership over some of the aspects of the, the, the results and effects of Alport syndrome than really was fair to me, which is kind of a long way of saying that when the transplant failed and I had to drop out of college again and I was looking down what seemed to be this long, long, probably endless road uh, of disability, I felt like it was my fault. I really, I really took it personally. And I felt because it was my fault that when the, the transplant failed, I too was a failure. Um, it was really, really important to me to be a college graduate, to, to follow up on my goals, um, of, you know, being a, a certified music teacher in a public school. And, uh, the inability to do that, was, like I said, crushing. It was so defeating. I was so despairing of the whole thing. Um, and so I guess to circle back around a little bit, I, I don't have specific memories of feeling that in, you know, April, May, June, but I know I felt it because 
in July, August, September, October, for a couple, three, four years, I still felt that way about that. It got better. And, you know, you and I talked about it and you were very helpful. And I talked about it with other people. Um, but it was, it was just like the worst thing that had ever happened to me. Um, in contrast, and I, I feel like this has often been true for me that while one thing is not going well, another thing is going very well. Uh, that's tr been true for most of my life until the last seven or eight years, actually. That while that was for me, as I was experiencing like the biggest tragedy I had ever had at the same time, I was finally getting to be with you, the person that I wanted to be with. And I know I, we had been together for about a year, but like we were separated by a mountain range <laughs> and, um, <laughs> And, you know, modern technology being what it was, that was all right. We could Skype, we could call, we could text, we could do all of those things and stay in touch. And that made the challenges of having a long-distance relationship more manageable. But I didn't want to have a long-distance relationship. I wanted to have an in-person relationship. <laughs> um, and so through the same tragedy of losing my transplant and having to drop out of college, and at least in my feelings at the time, like I said, not maybe ever getting to achieve many of these goals that I had for myself, I also then fixed this other thing. I got to go move in with you and live with you and sort of start our lives together in that way. And that was great. Um, and so I had, you know, on the one hand, this amazing, terrific thing that I'd really been looking forward to and wanting for a very long time. And then on the other hand, like, like maybe the worst thing at the same time. And so it was a, a time of my best and my worsts all at once. And I think this is a thing that we've talked about several times before, but I feel like is a really huge part of why sometimes it's hard to make this podcast and tell these stories or talk about chronic illness and disability. It's because everything comes in combination, that lives are complex, yeah. that you want to tell a story about here's this bad thing that happened and have people feel the impact of that. It was a really bad thing that happened. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that everything at that time was bad. It's a very confusing mix. Yeah. And it's like I, I said so one time, like I could tell the story of this year one way, the sad way. I could tell this story this year the happy way. Yeah. And it's really true. Mm -hmm. And I think that that really complicates narratives of chronic illness and disability. Yeah, it really does. Because it's hard to tell a story where you actually convey, no, it got really serious, it got really bad, mm -hmm. but my life is not bad. <laughs> right, right. I mean, there were definitely times during this period where I felt like my life was bad, but it was never all bad because I was living with you, and that was really good. But yeah, it's always complicated. And I think that uh, sort of the other interesting thing I've been thinking about over the last several weeks, if not a month or so, is that even though this is pretty long form, and sometimes I feel like I'm rambling on and on, like right now, I also know that there's lots of little details, and in some cases, stories that just I haven't told, that may be relevant, may not. And some of them are like, oh, remember this time? That was fun. And some of them are like, oh, there was this other little bad thing. And I think that's fairly equal across the board. You know, there were lots of good little things going on, and there were also lots of not great little things going on all the time because life is messy. 
And part of that mess is starting a relationship, an important one, during this crazy year of your life with the stomach problems, with that crazy trip to the Yakima ER, with this loss of the transplant. Yeah. How do you think it affected our relationship? <laughs> I guess so much it did. I think that the first few months of us, like, getting together and, and dating, we both knew that it was pretty serious and real, which was good because we were right, but also it was good because there was so much heavy stuff like immediately on the horizon or sometimes actively happening right then. And, you know, that's tough to weather for anybody. I mean, it was tough for me to weather on my own. It was tough for you to weather on your own. It was easier for us to weather it together. But in some ways, it was also a little bit more challenging for us to weather it together because, you know, we'd been together for about a year, which is a decent amount of time, but in relationship time, not that long. So we were still sometimes navigating relationship stuff. How do we manage an emotional difficulty that one of us is having? How do we share that with each other? How do we comfort one another in a way that we both need, that works for both of us? How does one person respond to stress and how does one per the other person help the first person? Mm -hmm. You know, all of those things are little nitty gritty details of a relationship that you've got to figure out. And some things come more naturally and some things you just have to figure out. And so we were still doing that in a really high pressure situation. It was already a little bit more stressful because of the distance, but it's obviously way more stressful when, you know, your partner goes blind for a week because he almost died because of a rebound reaction. So we were figuring out a lot of things fast sometimes. <laughs> um, and also, though, sometimes I think, like in retrospect, that in a relationship, you don't want to figure out things that are more day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week kind of things with giant epic things. Because the response to, say, my rebound reaction and having to go to this remote hospital and all that stuff is much more specific to that actual situation and its real seriousness than to something like I don't know, I got a B on my paper and I'm worried about what am I going to do in the semester. Right. Which is a silly example on purpose because you never would get a B on a paper. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that in some ways then set a stage, I think, in our relationship for like, then later we had to figure out smaller stuff because, oh, it's just small because we had figured out the uh -huh. stuff in a big way. But at the same time, I feel like there are ways where that sort of accelerated our closeness. Like, we would now be as close as we are, but we got to a deeper closeness faster than we would have had we not been dealing with these immense challenges together. And, you know, we weren't dealing with them alone. It wasn't just the two of us against the world by any means. We had your family, we had my family, we had friends around us that were helping us all the time, but... A lot, it was the two of us. We were living together. It was just us, and I couldn't go out as easily. And us dealing with those things as frequently and as big as they were really showed us that we could really rely on one another when, like, really, no kidding, chips were down, that it was, we were there for each other. Um, at least for me, I mean, 
you were there for me 100% all the time. And I knew always that you had and have my best interest in mind. So you said your first real specific memory of this period is moving day. Yeah. So when you moved to Seattle, <laughs> there's a lot of logistics when you switch cities as somebody who is disabled and needs to do dialysis. Boy, are there. You know, you switch your doctor, you switch your hospital, you switch full medical teams for all the other related mm -hmm. health issues you've got. you got to find a new dialysis center at a very specific time yeah. in the moving process. Mm -hmm. So talk a bit about what that's like. How is it to transition for the first time in your life from your native city to your new city? Okay. Yeah. All the challenges you just list listed are very, very real. A tiny bit of background. When we had finally said we are going to move for real and we were starting to make those plans and I was going to need a doctor, I wanted to go to the University of Washington Medical Center because it's a research hospital, which is generally where I prefer to go because I have an extremely rare disease. And so we spoke to my then, I guess, former transplant nurse, and in a way, kind of ironically, the same doctor that we were talking about two episodes ago, because he was still my doctor, and said, who should I go see? I think also at the time, it wasn't like you just look up doctors on the internet yet. And he made a recommendation of a longtime colleague of his, and so I called him and we made an appointment. And it, it was one of those really weird times where I had to say, no, I need to see you on this day. And like they're Wednesday. Wednesday, right? Like we are going to accommodate this day. And I think that we actually adjusted our move based on that availability. But it had to be a, a specific day because when I described dialysis, as I said, like if we were moving on Wednesday, I don't remember the day of the week. I just named one that was random. <laughs> okay. So let's pretend it's Wednesday. That's fine. That meant I had dialysis in Portland on Tuesday, then I was going to move to Seattle on Wednesday and need to have dialysis in Seattle on Thursday. And there's kind of no other way to do that. So that's tricky. Right, because a lot of times you put things on hold when you move or vacation, but yeah. if you don't have a working kidney, your body is still doing the same stuff. Those toxins still need to yeah. be filtered out, and so there are all these ticking clocks that you have to observe. And so, yes, you need to get all, everything moved or as moved as it can be so that Ari can see the doctor, get the dialysis prescription and a center set up so he can go the next day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thank you for filling in those details. That's it's really important. It's not just like, oh, I'll show up at a dialysis center and say, dialyze me and stick out my arm and they'll do it. It's it's a thing that has to be carefully arranged because it's not visitor dialysis. It's real dialysis, which means I need a local doctor's prescription. So by that time, my all of my possessions had been put in storage in Ellensburg by my dad and some of my friends at school, uh, which was, of course, so generous and helpful um, while I was in the hospital, I think. So I had got in touch with my friends and said, hey, I'll be at my storage facility from this time to this time, loading everything up, moving. It'll be a chance for us to see each other one last time, probably before um, I say goodbye forever, and we're just friends on Facebook, and I would really love your help if you can. And a number of them came out and really just helped me pick stuff up and move it, which was great because, um, you know, I was a dialysis patient. I wasn't really great at stuff. So we got everything loaded into the truck, and we headed across the mountains uh, with you following me in your car. Mm-hmm. 
And that's a long drive. <laughs> uh, it's uh, three, four hours, something mm-hmm. like that. And then even though we lived in Seattle for three years, I never managed to do well with the way that the freeways and the streets are laid out. So once we got there and I was driving like a moving truck, it was a little tricky, but we managed to get there and get everything loaded uh, into the apartment, which we had visited a week before or something like that and actually rented. Um, we have some pictures, I think, from that day. Mostly, you moved everything into the apartment. Um, doing that, the loading and the driving really, really exhausted me. I had not been out of the hospital that long, a month or two. And um, I remember, like, in the truck, we had unloaded about half the stuff, I think, and I kind of sat or lay down on the couch just to, like, take a breather and I woke up several hours later. I wasn't intending to take a nap, but I woke up several hours later to almost everything in the, the truck being gone because you had said, Ari needs a nap. I will continue to load stuff. So it was another example of, you know, you just backing me up and taking care of things because things needed to be taken care of. Um, and it was also, so talking about sort of contrast, was also an example of, that was help I needed that I didn't know that I needed and a way that I needed to sort of rely on somebody else or to put us in a slightly more negative way to put a burden on somebody else um, without meaning to. And so um, you did that. And it was very nice. And we managed to wrestle my giant ancient couch down some concrete steps. Oh, I hated that couch. And I ended up moving it three times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was it was a couch that I believe initially belonged to my great grandmother. And she passed away in the early eighties and then it came to my parents' house because they needed another couch. And then at some point they didn't and a family friend had a son who needed a couch and so he had it for a while. And then he had moved away, and I was going to Ellensburg, and so it became my couch. And just fast forward a little bit from the story we're talking about, eventually we got rid of it in place of a futon, which was excellent. And some college dudes who lived in the same apartment complex were extremely thrilled, not only to get a couch, but one that had cushions. So... Once that happened, I hope it lives on. And I mean, it was indestructible. So <laughs> yeah, they saw us taking it to the dumpster and were psyched. <laughs> Is that a free couch? Yeah. And then you're like, oh, I'll go get the cushions. And they said, there's cushions too. And we realized that we had actually moved up in the world just a little bit from that, that stage in our lives. So anyway, I'd taken a nap and you would move just about everything. And we managed to wrestle that, that ancient war horse of a couch into our apartment and we hadn't really set it very much up, but we had done that. And somewhere in there, maybe the next day, I guess, bright and early, I had an appointment with my new doctor. Yeah, so talk about what the first appointment with the new doctor was like. <laughs> it was weirdly cool. This was a doctor who was um, much, much older than me. He's now retired and has been a professor emeritus at, at University of Washington for several years. I walked in and he had, you know, seen my chart and he had talked to my previous doctor and maybe we'd even spoken on the phone a little bit, but he was, he was bright eyed and alert and interested to meet me. And 
he had a um, nephrology fellow with him, which was true every time I saw him and was not uncommon in my experience at a research hospital. And we started to do my history, but almost immediately he sort of stopped me and turned to his fellow and he said, look at this patient, what caused his renal failure? And the, the look on that guy's face, who became my primary nephrologist often over the next three years, was this mixture of what? And also, <laughs> okay, wait, this is, there's got to be a real answer to this. And he, he was looking at me and he was like, and he, he said, you know, I, I don't know. And my doctor, his teacher said, look, he's pretty young. He's relatively healthy, but we know he has kidney failure and he's wearing two hearing aids. Now what caused his kidney failure? And I could see him just like going through his like files from med school. Like, okay, we've studied this. We've studied this. It's got to be something weird. Got to be something rare. What is it? What is it? And he went, Oh, Alport syndrome. And I was shocked. And of course his teacher was very proud. He was like, good. From now on, somebody walks in like this, you know, a young man wearing hearing aids, relatively healthy, but with kidney problems, you should know immediately Alport syndrome. And he was like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I was like, blown away that he got it right not just that he got it right but that somebody could actually do that because of course it made sense from what i knew about the disease at that time yeah those those three indicators alone should tell you it's this and nothing else but that was the first time pretty much in my life that i had not just met somebody who'd heard of alport syndrome because of course i had but that it was the kind of thing where they're saying you should know this because you're going to have patients who have this. And it was the first time that I didn't have to say I have Alport syndrome and then maybe also say, listen, it's a form of hereditary nephritis. It's explain the disease to your doctor. Yeah, and like say like, you know, it's a glomerular thing and all this stuff that I barely understood. And I would start talking about, well, I think it's excellent. And, and then eventually at some point, usually a light would dawn and be like, oh, that's right. That was a paragraph in a textbook in med school. So it was, it was really heartening. And I immediately, you know, loved this doctor and thought, oh, he really knows what he's doing. And it was, it was a really long appointment, um, cause they had to do all the usual intake stuff and, you know, get my history and things like that. But they also had to, um, and do a physical exam. But as part of the intake, because they were interested, they did a not extensive, but a more extensive than necessary family history because they were curious about the progress of the disease. And then, as we mentioned previously, they had to look at all my meds. And when we started looking at my meds, uh, as I think you described, his eyes got so wide and he looked concerned. Um, I really remember that moment because it was a little scary for me. I was saying, well, yep, here's the meds. And he was like, wait, what? We had a long conversation about each one of them which is unusual because he was just like, well, you take these meds and okay, they're working for you, right? But my blood pressure was still kind of high and we took it several times during that appointment and it still was high. And so he said, you know what, let's, um, I don't think these are necessary because I was on four or five blood pressure meds. And he said, I think we could take you off of most, if not all of these and we'll do so in a controlled way and we'll just control with diet and I think you're going to be fine. You know, you're way too young to be on this many medications, and it would be extremely unusual if you actually needed it. So we're going to do that. 
you know, we adjusted a couple of other things based on my position in my health. Um, I think I was still taking some transplant meds because my previous doctor thought I should do that because I was going to have another transplant soon, which is in my, to my knowledge now, not a medically good idea or necessary thing, but he took me off of those also. So we had had this long appointment that was like an hour and a half. And then he was like kind of go, mentally going through, okay, so we've done this, 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 and this. And he was like, okay, so what about dialysis? And I said, yes, that is the other thing. He said, when was the last time you dialyzed? And I said, two days ago. And he said, oh, so you need dialysis tomorrow. And I was like, <laughs> and I was kind of embarrassed because I had been really clear about that on the phone with the scheduling people. And I assumed they'd put it in the chart and he probably had seen it, but we'd just done a whole bunch of other stuff. And I said, yeah, I do. And he said, okay, no problem. And he picked up the phone and from memory called, he asked me where I lived and called the dialysis center that was near to where we lived, spoke to the head nurse by first name because they knew each other and said, I've got this patient. You need to see him tomorrow. He's great. <laughs> and set me up. And he said, you know, right now you'll be on this schedule, whatever the days are. And if you want to adjust it, you can negotiate that with them. But he said, you have an appointment tomorrow at whatever the time was. Here's the address. They're great. And it was that easy and so simple. And it was such a relief. Like everything about meeting that doctor was about competence. And like I, I also explained, like that has been my experience, generally speaking, pretty much always. But I was coming off this really, really crummy experience that was more crummy for you, but it was... It had been so crummy and to come in and just see like really affirmatively him to say, this med is not right for you and this has this bad side effect. Why on earth would you be on this and this and this? And all of this is going to be better. Here's our plan. And he like laid out this very detailed, very specific, really strong plan that we were going to put into effect immediately and I was going to feel better. And then I was going to have dialysis and it was all smooth and great. So that that's what that was like. And then... Yeah, the next day, I went in, I met them, it was a very nice center, and um, they put me on the machines, and it, it went pretty well. And I want to highlight this because it might be important for other people to hear, mm -hmm. which is that you've had memory problems. We've talked about on this podcast. You've yeah. had cognitive difficulty because of your health sometimes. Yes. So for a lot of these important doctor's appointments, we had a strategy where I would go with you to the appointment. Mm -hmm. So there would be somebody else in the room who might remember all the recommendations the doctor made or what medications he took you off of or what the new plan was. Right. So in case you just came home and crashed and took a nap and then vaguely had a memory of a doctor's appointment, <laughs> there would be something more concrete. But also, it's important for you to still be autonomous and not have like yeah. the buddy system for your, <laughs> for your doctor. So you brought a notepad to every appointment. Right. And you would often write all the stuff that had been going on with your health since your last appointment ahead of time and any questions you had before that. So you'd bring the notepad in and read all of that to the doctor. Mm -hmm. And then also anything he said, you would immediately put into the notepad. Yeah. And this helped a lot. Mm -hmm. It helped keep track of things. And it's a good pair of strategies to use because I think that people maybe don't know a lot because your kidneys are far from your brain. <laughs> that there's not that association that these things, these not, not being able to filter all the toxins out of your blood, a lot of the other complications affect memory, affect cognitive processes. Yeah. But it can be okay. You can develop strategies to manage this and to stay on top of things. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's a, a related strategy to 
one that I've used in a number of situations before that. When I was teaching, I had also a pocket-sized notebook that I would write down things while students were playing for me. Because, you know, you play for eight minutes, that's a lot of music in eight minutes. And if I want to list 15 things that we need to work on, I want to do that. Okay, or just to, so that I remember three days from now, okay, when we had that one run through, there was this one issue that we need to come back to. And so I was in the habit of carrying a notebook for certain things and um, making notes on it. And I still do the same thing today. Now I just use my phone. I email myself all the time, but it's the same idea. And, you know, writing helps you remember anyway. But, yeah, and what's funny is, I had forgotten that I used to do that with a notebook, <laughs> but um, yeah, I think I went through several notebooks and I just threw them out, and it's too bad because they would have been kind of like Beethoven's little notebooks that are in the museum now, assuming I'm actually that famous, which I'm not, but it would be interesting to read that now. So yeah, I, that, that's an immensely helpful strategy that I just sort of, I think, happened upon. So in-center dialysis in Seattle for you was pretty typical. Mm-hmm. I don't recall. Maybe you can tell me. There weren't any weird experiences or crazy stories from that time. It was really smooth and pretty easy. Uh, yeah, there are two main things I remember. Right. I do remember one story. <laughs> and since you're laughing, I think you know the one that I'm talking yeah. about. So could you please tell that story? Sure. So one day I found myself on dialysis. Uh, no, I, you know, I was, I was at the center. I was on the machine and I was doing the thing I typically did, which was watching old TV shows. And I started having or feeling some chest pains and they hurt a little bit. And I was like, okay, this isn't that big a deal. And then it got a little worse and a little bit more worse. And so I said something to either a tech or a nurse. And then the nurse came over and we talked about it. And it was one of those things where they, they treated it seriously, but not immediately crazy. You know, they, they said, okay, we'll check in in five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever, like, let me know. And it kept getting worse and worse. And it was not a pain that I had ever experienced before, which freaks you out. You know, I've had a lot of different pains in a lot of different places, and this was a new one. So after, I want to say like 15 minutes, where it just kept getting a little bit worse and was not getting any better... The nurse, I think, followed a protocol and gave me a nitroglycerin tablet, said, maybe you're having a little bit of heart trouble, and so take this and see if it helps. So I had nitroglycerin, which was weird, <laughs> and also I was kind of scared, like, oh, I'm having this heart thing on dialysis that I'm really young, oh no, and it didn't fix it, and they, you know, they'd kept checking in with me. And I don't remember if it was getting worse or not, but it certainly didn't fix it. And so the decision was made. And I think they consulted me, but I was like, you are the professionals, do what you need to do. And they called 911 or they, they called whoever a, a medical facility calls to get an ambulance and paramedics came. And that's a thing that happens at dialysis centers. Sometimes paramedics show up and it's scary as a patient because when the person in the chair next to you or three chairs over has emergency people run, rushing to their side. Yeah, or across the way. And like, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen anything too freaky. You know, I, I know that there are times where people have been on a machine and started having actual heart problems and need like electric paddles, you know, or things. And I'm pretty sure I've never seen that. But, you know, you are in a medical facility. 
you do feel vulnerable. There are lots of things that can go wrong. And if it's such an emergency that the actual nurses who are there can't take care of it, that's scary that, okay, they're calling in outside help. <laughs> and it had never been me, and this time it was. And uh, they came in and were super helpful. It was also strange because I remember there being like eight paramedics. And so I was kind of, I was very scared and I was in pain. And, but I was also imagining like, what kind of clown car ambulance is this that they all <laughs> piled out of? And I think what happened is that like an ambulance and a fire truck came. I don't know why, but that's what happened. I know why. Well, <laughs> the other aspect, which is what you're talking about is that this was the stereotypical, like they could have been the cast of some TV show about paramedics because each one was better looking and in better shape than the last. And they started out real good looking. It was, I, if I said eight, so I think there were seven men and one woman. And different people talked to me during different times. Um, but man, those guys were good looking. And all the techs and all the nurses just happened to find their way over to near my station quite a lot during that little visit. So I was definitely getting the uh, attention that I needed as the patient, but um, the paramedics were also getting quite a bit of attention themselves. The way this story was later relayed to me was like, oh yeah, Ari was fine, and we got to call the fire department. <laughs> okay, that sounds about right to me. <laughs> they could not figure out what was going on necessarily, and they actually put me in an ambulance, and I sat with like two paramedics and I weirdly I just totally felt like I was on a TV show both because I was in the back of an ambulance and because I was with these incredibly good-looking people that was weird um and they took they took really good care of me and then having put me in the ambulance at that point so they had to take me off the machine early they put me in the ambulance I had started to feel better and I think they had actually just sort of on a lark they had given me an antacid somewhere along the way and I started to feel better. And through some conversation about what was going on and how I was feeling, they said, listen, there's no need to be embarrassed, but you're not having a heart attack. So that's the good news. Um, this was just really severe heartburn. And I was incredibly embarrassed, <laughs> obviously, because I've had heartburn before. I had had heartburn then many times in different ways. It's a thing that happens sometimes, especially with, with some of my health things. And I had initially thought maybe that's what it was, but it was in a different place in my chest and it felt completely different. You know, that's why it said something. It wasn't just like, I've got heartburn. If I just kind of chill for a while or ask for a Tums, it'll get better. So they, I think they had called you or I had called you and said, I'm in an ambulance, but I'm okay. Probably said something to my parents, called them as well and said, I'm in an ambulance, but I'm okay. Um, and then I went home. Yeah, I think that the nurses had called you as well, just to let you know this is what happened. Yeah, and I can reassure you that you do not need to be embarrassed about the heartburn. You you made <laughs> several people's day. It's it's true. Um, they <laughs> they enjoyed their time very much. Uh, so that's that was the biggest thing that ever happened. There was another day where somebody who was seated right next to me and who was very very sick. I think that they went to hospice like later that day there was something going on and there were really 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 bad smells um it went beyond any kind of like 
farts that I had ever experienced. And I don't know if that's all it was. And the nurse kept apologizing to me. Um, you know, we had had a pretty good relationship by that point anyway. And she kept apologizing to me and she was taking like Glade spray or pledge or something that was orange scented and just spraying like a third of the can directly onto the floor in between us. So it would sort of stick there and I would have some kind of scent barrier, which would work for about five minutes. And then I would have like orange on top of this sort of sewage smell. It was not great. But, you know, <laughs> then it was over. It was a couple hours and then it was done. And, uh, it's a thing that, that kind of sometimes happens because there's some very ill people on dialysis. Right. And we've talked before about the compromise of privacy that happens in a hospital or in a dialysis center. Yeah. That's a very private thing that that person probably doesn't want a nurse and another patient <laughs> discussing and having strategies about. And, you know, there's been other things with hospital roommates where you and I have sat quietly on the other side of a curtain listening to two spouses have a very intense fight or listen to people have very sad, desperate conversations with their insurance provider oh or goodness, yeah. calling relatives for money. And again, we're telling stories on this podcast and telling a story about the nurse trying to fight farts with a Glade freshener is funny. But I also want to acknowledge this is just a thing that happens that you kind of have to get comfortable with, and of course you know about it. You know these things that these other people would rather you not be a witness to. Right. And you've kind of got to just sort of pretend not to be there for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In a certain way, I would say it actually kind of prepared me for living in New York because we all live and walk and exist so closely together here, especially on the streets and especially, especially in the subway, that sometimes something's going on. You're having an intense conversation, you're really distraught, and that's your private business happening sometimes inches away from a bunch of other people trying to have their private business. And we all kind of do our best to give people their space to have that when we can. And um, I think that would have been way more disorienting for me <laughs> had I not had the dialysis experience. I think some people make that transition easily with no problem. It would have been harder for me if I had not, you know, been in rooms with people having, like you said, insurance conversations or spouse conversations or um, serious health issue conversations. And I think since I really did promise last week that we were <laughs> going to get back to listener questions. Yeah. I, we're going to wrap it up right now and head over to the listener questions segment. Cool. This is a thing that I've been getting from lots of different people and have gotten prior to the podcast, mm -hmm. too, which is, do you have any advice for people who are going to be spending long amounts of time in the hospital? You know, mm. we've talked before about how, because you're so used to it, there's sometimes that realization like, oh, this is a thing that's alien and sometimes scary for other people if they're going in for a procedure or their spouse is or a loved one. And do you have any advice about how to really hack a long-term hospital stay <laughs> i do i guess uh i have i have advice for patients and for family members and friends i'll start with the family members and friends i'm, I'm interested to hear this okay <laughs> um and this is from my experience and also from you know seeing what what people have done near me so it's really tempting to send some kind of thing to the person who is in the hospital and that is really appreciate it. I strongly recommend against flowers, as pretty as they are. Sometimes the person who's in the hospital is 
has allergies like I do or is having some kind of respiratory thing or sometimes their roommate or roommates do. And you want a hospital to be as sterile an environment as possible and flowers just aren't that great, living or dead. I used to recommend balloons. I had a really bad experience with a balloon, but I still say, like, that's really nice. Other things, you know, a stuffed animal or, or something like that. There's hospital gift shops have that stuff. Uh, and I think they mostly don't sell flowers anymore, probably for that reason. So that kind of thing is very nice. Cards are nice. It's nice to be visited in the hospital. But if you're in the hospital for a long period of time, that's usually because you're very ill. And if you're very ill, you are often very tired or in pain. So if you're going to go visit and almost everybody kind of needs that visit because you need that human contact that's not a nurse or a doctor or a physician's assistant or any of the other numerous people that you see, phlebotomists, be aware that hospitals operate in their own time zone. They've got things going on. You might show up just as somebody's being wheeled out to take a test, and that test, while the test itself takes five minutes, there might be a backlog or something. Um, there's all kinds of things, and it's going to be inconvenient sometimes. There's visitors' hours. There's other things, um, and... Like, there's supposed to be schedules, but there's so many moving parts and humans and their own issues in a hospital that it's very difficult to actually say, I'll be there at 10 and nothing else is happening at 10 because maybe something was supposed to happen at 9, but it got pushed back because somebody else was super sick, for instance. So just be aware. And, you know, <laughs> you're going to have somebody who's going to be in pain. They might be cranky. They might fall asleep. But generally... I have always appreciated visits. So that's one aspect. Another thing that you can do uh, that has always been recommended to people around me and I've seen it work is if you're into this kind of thing, especially if you've got somebody in the hospital for several weeks, bring cookies or baked goods of some kind. Probably not candy, but like bring something that is usually edible and small, that is enjoyable by a lot of people, to the nurse's station. And <laughs> this sounds crass, but like put a little card, you know, because you want to thank the nurses because, oh my God, if I have not said it, nurses are the best and they do all the work and they put up with so much stuff. Like we always say, well, they clean up all these disgusting things, but the amount of emotional labor that goes into being a nurse is ridiculously high because like I just said, you've got people in pain, people who are scared, people who are dealing with just those two things tend to be, to say the least, not at their best. I try really hard. This is getting ahead of myself. I try really hard to be very nice and friendly with nurses and other staff, but you know, if you're in pain, you don't know. It, 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 sometimes you shout, sometimes you're really cranky. Um, and it, even if you're not, other people are. And sometimes, you know, meds do weird things to people. And so thanking the nursing staff who are the ones who are on the floor all the time and in control of all of those things is kind of the least you can do. And so bringing them something like that and then saying with, you know, thank you, wonderful nurses from patient so-and-so in room whatever. First of all, like I said, just a nice thing. And then you're saying by proxy, at least, thank you for helping me. But also... Often what that means is for that day or a couple of days that that cookie platter is out, all the different nurses will stop by an extra time to say, hey, thanks for the cookies. 
And like I said, this seems kind of crass, but what that means is sometimes you go for stretches of hours at a time, just being alone in your bed and maybe you can't get out. So it means you're getting a little bit more human contact from the nurses. And it means that they're coming in and they actually check on you too. Cause like, thanks for the cookies. Need anything? And it's not like, oh yes, thank you. I need a juice or whatever, but it might be like, actually, I've been having this pain. Could you check on this for me or something? And that's, that's helpful. That's a helpful reinforcer. Yeah, I co-signed this plan, and I also want to make sure that it, it's not as crass as, like, slipping the mater d' a 20. <laughs> you know, you're not bribing a nurse to give your loved one more attention. No. And that's not how it works, and it's not transactional like that. Right. But I think, you know, acknowledging they have a hard job, and here's a nice thing you can do if you have the time or money to put cookies at the nurse's station mm-hmm. or some other thing like that. You're creating a person-to-person connection with people instead of just treating them as service drones. Yeah. In a way, like, have a strategy where you acknowledge you're a person and I'm a person and this isn't just your job to take care of my loved one. Mm -hmm. But we're people and we can relate as people. And I can say, like, hey, how was your day today? Or if we see each other that way instead of you as just the thing in the bed and them as the thing that takes care of you. Right. It's really important. And sometimes, like... You shouldn't just be friendly to people because you expect friendliness back. Right. But forging a human connection can just make it feel better for you, right? Like, oh, here's my friend, morning nurse is here, (laughs) you know, and then like we can talk a little bit and that can really ease monotony or the other negative feelings that can come with being in the hospital for a long time if you just get to see this person that you have a casually friendly relationship with drop by. Yeah, yeah, I I think... Also, you know, hospitals, especially long, longer term stay areas, as much as they try to be positive, you know, that's not a good position that anybody wants to be in. And so they tend to be a little bit more professional and a little bit more, you know, sadder. Not, not necessarily that the nurses are sadder, the patients are sadder, but just a little bit because it's hard. It's not like, Hey, we're here. We're doing this thing and we're out. It's longer. And so just trying to add, a little bit more sort of positivity and friendliness to the whole system really helps. It helps everybody. So that was my thoughts for family and friends. For the patient, uh, um, <laughs> I was going to say basic things like learn how to use your bed. It Hospital beds are just weird. And if you figure out the buttons, then you become somebody who doesn't need as much help, which is nice. Um, and the lights and all that stuff, because they're a little strange. It's not that hard to figure out usually. And then you can feel a little bit more in control of your destiny, which might not seem like a lot, but in the hospital, you're really not in control of very much. You don't get to choose your clothes. You don't get to choose when you go places often. Somebody will just show up out of the blue, sometimes to take you to a test that you didn't know had been ordered. (laughs) And that shouldn't happen that way, but it happens every once in a while. And you know, never mind getting awakened at like 5 a.m. with all the lights turned on so that somebody can take a lot of blood from your arm. So having that agency is nice. I would also suggest as much as possible, like we were just talking about those human connections, like really make that little effort to be as friendly as you can with the caveats that you're probably extremely exhausted, you're very sick, you're in lots of pain, to to make those connections to the people who take care of you on a daily basis. They'll put their name on a whiteboard. There's all kinds of systems at this point that are pretty standard around the country, in my experience at least, which will help you out. But making that connection and just acknowledging like, yeah, this is this is a tough situation for everybody. It's your job, but that doesn't mean it's not a tough situation. So those things, 
you know, try to avoid screaming at all hours and things because other people have are also in the hospital, I would guess. Oh, and uh, one other thing. Um, as much as possible, and doctors always recommend this, and for there were times where I was like, eh, whatever. As much as possible, walk. Get out of your room. It's The scenery is limited because you're never on a huge floor, but sometimes there's a window, sometimes there's another place you can sit. Walk, move around. It will make you feel better. You know, it you, it doesn't take much often. If you're at a point where you need to be in the hospital, it doesn't take much for it to feel like exercise. You know, wow, well, I just did a, a 30-foot lap twice, and whew, I need to sit down now. Sure, but that'll help you out. Like, there's all kinds of the physical things. Yes, it will help you with that, but the mental and emotional experience of walking around and being able to see people and see other patients and just like a little smile and a wave or not. Yeah, being out of your sick bed. Yeah, changing changing your scenery as much as you can there is really, really, really useful. You know, if you want to watch TV, watch TV. If you want to read a book, read a book. Have entertainment options that are good for you. Yeah, I will add a little bit to that because... I have that experience yeah. sitting with you. I kind of joked around a little bit that that book that I read during that terrible long hospital stay mm-hmm. with you was Angela's Ashes. So so I joked about that, but I think in a certain way, sometimes a thing that works for me is depressing literature. <laughs> sometimes reading something that's really jovial and happy and comedic is mm. too much of a contrast with what I'm feeling. Yeah. And sometimes you need that good tone that matches what you need. And I don't recommend, you know, super depressing literature for everybody to help them cope. But if that's your thing, don't feel like you can't embrace it. Yeah. And what you said about hospitals existing in their own time zones, completely true. Yeah. And so having it in your head that you're just going to go there and read your book for hours and sometimes interact with your loved one and sometimes get a bit of news from doctors, Mm -hmm. but that your primary activity will be sitting and reading and then being available for when it's time to go for a walk or do those things is a better mindset to be in. Mm -hmm. You haven't really been in the hospital since the era of podcasts, but I can imagine that I would have listened to so many podcasts. Yeah. So those are the sort of strategies I recommend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I, I think just as a patient, I would also say to visitors sometimes, be conscious of the fact that it is, it's really rare that the person you're visiting is in a room by themselves. And that means a lot of things. You know, like you said, we have both been there when spouses are having super intense conversations about all kinds of things. Sometimes the state of their relationship. Sometimes, oh my God, what am I going to do if this transplant fails? What, you know, what are we going to do about the kids? What are we going to do about this? Like serious, serious personal business. And I'm not saying don't have that conversation there because you gotta, but there's a cloth, like there's a, a curtain between you. But on the other side, like sometimes people come in and they're wearing like super heavy perfume and that's not great for the same reason flowers are not great. Or they're like, well, I'm sort of here to see this person, but they're asleep. So I'm going to have an extremely loud conversation on my phone in the room where I could, there's plenty of places you go out in the hall, you could do whatever because somebody might be trying to sleep. It doesn't matter that it's three in the afternoon, but they might be trying to sleep because they need to do that because their body's trying to heal. I, I guess it, it's a recommendation, but it's also sort of a plea for me as a as a patient, like, please be really considerate. Because I know that sometimes I have had visitors who don't always take those things into consideration either. And it's really awkward for me as the patient to be like, hey, by the way, don't do that. So like, you don't, 
don't make the patient police. Like, consider that you're in a, a place where lots of people are sick. And uh, yeah, I guess, I don't know. Think about that. And before we go, I'm going to ask my last question. Ari, how are you feeling this week? I've been, I've been doing okay. You know, I said last week, I think that I'd thrown up once or twice in the morning and that hasn't happened, but this week, but I, I've had a little bit of a, sometimes I have kind of a gagging thing because I'm draining down the back of my throat. And that's happened a couple of times, but it's mostly a, a matter of me kind of getting going because it's so early in the morning. And this isn't exactly part of the question, but I'm really enjoying my classes this year. So I'm, I'm really stoked about that. I'm feeling good and um, ready to keep going. Awesome. Yeah. Before we wrap up and I do the usual sign-off, I just wanted to talk about how, as we were recording this, this week, the new Apple iOS update came out. Mm -hmm. And if you have an iPhone and you've just gotten the new operating system, I recommend that you go into your health app Mm -hmm. because you can sign up to be an organ donor from there. Wow. I, I didn't know that. So it's really cool. It's a really easy way to be on the list, and I really applaud them for incorporating Mm -hmm. this into the iPhone. It's amazing. So if you've got one, go sign up to be an organ donor right now. It's super easy. I went through the process, even though I'm already signed up, so that I could tell you myself. (laughs) It takes about a minute. Wow. And it's a great, it's a great, fantastic thing to do. Ari's life was saved by an organ donor, Mm -hmm. and we just came back from this meeting a couple weeks ago with lots of people who are either transplant recipients or people who will need one mm-hmm. later in life. It is very, very real. And you being an organ donor, you can save the lives of up to eight people. Yeah. So go and do that. And I include information about how to become an organ donor as a link in the show notes of every episode. Yeah. Those show notes are available on my website, lauramorris.com, L-A-R-R-A. M-O-R-R-I-S dot com. If you want to send an email to the KidneyCast, you can send us an email at KidneyCast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at KidneyCast and Facebook.com slash KidneyCast. Thank you so much for talking to me, Ari. Sure. Thank you. And thank you to everyone for listening. <laughs>